Is the killer in there? Probably. It's a horror podcast. It's going to frighten and disturb us. We're doing this at our own risk. <laughs> Ready? Ready for the dark tales when we dare not close our eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Sleep Podcast Video Store. I'm David Cummings. Our VCR is ready to play stories about nightmares from the past, present, and future. With this being the 14th episode of Season 13, many of you might be thinking about our Rent to Own program. That's where if you buy 14 episodes from any one season of our show, you can get upgraded to a full season pass from that season. But this is a reminder that since episode 12 was a free episode, you have one more episode to go until you hit the 14th. So at any point, if you buy 14 episodes from season 13, for example, you just email us at admin at thenosleeppodcast.com and we'll upgrade you to a full season pass. Simple as that. And speaking of the next episode, the Halloween Live Tour will be getting underway, so the tour team and I will be hitting the road. But rest easy, despite what happened during last year's tour, I've been assured by our very own Peter Lewis that no tomfoolery will take place. As such, Peter will be resuming his hosting duties. That's right, nothing could possibly go wrong, nor will it. And if you haven't already purchased your tickets for the Halloween live shows, you better be quick. Many venues have or are close to selling out. And for our fans in Europe, don't think that just because our European tour is a few months away that you can dawdle. Tickets are going fast at many venues. So go to the nosleeppodcast.com slash tour for tickets to both the Halloween Live and European 2020 shows. We'd hate to miss seeing you there. And now it's time to delve into this week's nightmares. So turn down the lights and grab the remote, because it's time for our feature presentation. In our first tale, we join a teen who's been packed off to stay with grandmother. It's important to spend time with elderly relatives. They've got so many stories to share, so much wisdom to impart. In this tale, though, shared with us by author Laura McCammon, it's tempting to question Granny's wisdom. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Erica Sanderson, and Peter Lewis. So when the night is dark and the moon is full, remember what your grandmother told you, and look out for the dancing demons. I was less than pleased when my father told me he was dropping me off at my grandmother's house. It wasn't that I didn't like the old strange woman, 
but since she had a turbulent relationship with all 10 of her children, including my dad, it meant that I, nor her 20 other grandchildren, ever spent much time with her. Instead, each of us took turns every summer so that no one got stuck with the old crazy lady for very long. I groaned as my father left me standing in the gravel driveway, leaving me in front of the old farmhouse with nothing but a suitcase. The wind chimes and dream catchers that lined the front porch sung as the wind rustled through the surrounding cornfields. Come on in, dear. My grandmother suddenly appeared in the front doorway. She didn't have eyes, only big white cataracts that were already boring into my soul. We have so much to do before they get here. Who? I asked, tugging my suitcase up the porch steps. The demons, of course. For anyone else, this might have been an odd response. But for my grandmother, it felt customary, since she was obsessed with anything that had to do with magic, spirits, or ghosts. Inside, the house smelled of incense and dogwood. Across each wall hung different tapestries, some with colorful patterns and designs, but most with pentagrams and other symbols and amulets I didn't know. You're just in time. Grandma gazed out the window as the sun began to set. Even from where I stood, I could see that the sky was exploding into a mirage of purples and blues, and the full moon beginning to make its way above the corn that outlined the property. They're going to be here soon. Who? Grandma turned to me, astonished. The demons. My cousin, who had visited her before me, had warned me that grandmother was really beginning to go off her rocker. Every time one of us visited her, all of us noticed her getting crazier and crazier. One of my cousins, James, had seen her talking to herself while she rocked back and forth in her rocking chair from sunrise to sundown. Ashley had seen her get up and go stand in the middle of the yard at night just to stare into the corn for hours. Dominic, the one who had been here before me, who my grandma had been able to convince to sit for a seance, swore he'd never come back, still unable to tell us what he'd seen that night. Since my grandma left me alone and busied herself with lighting candles and singing songs, only stopping every few minutes to pray, I decided to go upstairs and unpack. It had been a long day. As the sun began to settle beneath the horizon and my room darkened, I fell asleep on the bed that smelled like sage. I don't know how long I slept for, but when I was shaken awake, I could see the full moon high up in the night sky from my window. Get up, get up. The demons, the demons, they're outside. I blinked a few times, letting my eyes adjust. Night had fallen, and only moonlight lit my room enough for me to see her hovering above my bed. Her two big white eyes glowed as she stared down at me. What? The demons! It's the summer solstice and a full moon, which means the demons are coming and they're already dancing in the yard. She looked out the window with such delight that it actually sparked my interest. I threw back the covers and sat up to look out the window when she stopped me. No, dear. Come downstairs and look. You can't let them see you. She then trampled down the stairs faster than I had ever seen her move before, 
I couldn't lie that I was curious, so I followed her down to the first floor. All of the lights were off, and I found her on her knees, peering out of the window. Come, look at them dance. I bent down beside her, and she pulled open the curtain enough for me to see out into the dark yard. To my surprise, I saw five figures dancing in a circle at the edge of the yard, their black, wicked forms blending perfectly with the dark summer night. Some were big, while others were small, but they all moved in the most unnatural way, throwing their crooked heads back and laughing up at the moon as it rose high above the corn. We stayed and stared at them, watching as they danced and danced around and around in a circle, transfixed on how they moved, how they were mesmerizing in their own evil way. Suddenly, the curtain was thrown in front of my eyes. Don't let them see you. If they see you, they'll never leave. After another peek at the dancing devils, my grandma insisted that we had already looked too long. She then got up and made her way down into the basement, leaving me alone in the living room. I rubbed my eyes, not being able to believe what I had just seen. I'm probably sleeping, and this is just some messed up dream that I'm going to wake up to in the morning. Every time I had ever come over to the house, I had always encountered, heard, or seen something that couldn't possibly be there. Perhaps this is just like those times, I told myself. Or perhaps there was something in the water. Curiosity got the best of me, and I started to wonder if what I really saw could have really been there. There's no way demons could really be dancing in the yard. I got on my knees and pulled back the curtain. But sure enough, the black devils were still dancing in the circle. This can't be real. Just as one rounded the circle facing the house, it stopped its white eyes finding mine, almost as if it had heard me. I stared at it, and it stared back. A smile spread across its face. I dropped the curtain and hid behind the wall, my heart pounding in my chest. There's no way it's real. There's no such thing as demons, and this isn't real. But I had seen it, and I had felt its eyes on me. My hands shaking, I got up on my knees and pulled back the curtain. A face appeared, only a few inches from mine, shaped like a skeleton with black, crusty skin stretched across the bone. It grinned at me. I fell back, crawling across the floor to get away from the window. Grandma? Grandma! But for the first time, the old woman didn't appear. I ran downstairs to the basement to find the light off and no one there. When I tried the switch, the bulb never came on. I slammed the basement door shut and ran back into the living room to find the front door open. The warm summer air billowed into the room, reminding me that whatever had been out in the yard was now in the house. I slowly stepped across the hardwood floor to peek outside of the door. The moonlight showed an empty yard. Where had they gone? My pulse pounded in my ears. 
I didn't know what to do, to go outside into the dark or to stay inside the house where whatever I had seen in the yard now was. I couldn't help myself but to go to the open door, curious to see whether anything lurked in the vast backyard. My eyes swept from the right to the left across the property, where I found a black silhouette standing in front of the cornstalks. The demon smiled, staring at me. I screamed and slammed the door. Darting through the now pitch black house, I ran across the living room and up the stairs to the guest room I had been staying in. The room was dark and I tried the light switch in hopes that the power had come back on. No luck. Being in almost total darkness, I wondered if I looked out the east-facing window toward the backyard, if I would see the same figure standing there. The two windows in the room were only covered by cheap blinds. I crawled, trying not to make a sound, across the floor toward the one that faced the backyard. Ever so carefully, I pulled back one of the thin strips of plastic and gazed out at the yard below. The moon was high in the night sky now, and illuminated the yard nicely. I didn't see anything besides the corn dancing in the wind. Then, the demon's eyes were directly in front of mine. I jumped back, falling onto the wood floor, panicking because I knew the creature could see me just as well through the slits of the blinds. I took the blankets from the bed and threw them across both curtain rods. My breaths came out in short bursts, I covered my mouth, trying to quiet them. The door behind me was still open, and I didn't know whether to close it and barricade myself in or to run and find another hiding place. Not being sure if Grandma knew where I was or not, I slid on my knees across the floor and closed the bedroom door softly. I reached up and clicked the lock into place. My grandmother's voice got louder and louder as she went up the stairs the song gaining momentum with each step. I could feel the vibration radiating across the floor as she reached the bedroom door that I now had my back against. She still sung as she tried the lock. It shook above my head. I covered my mouth, trying not to scream. The lock fell quiet after she realized she wasn't getting in. She scraped her fingers down the wooden door behind me. Even though the door separated us, she was so close I could almost feel her breath against my neck. The song stopped, but her presence never disappeared. You should come out, darling. They're going to get you anyway. Tears rolled down my cheeks and my heart hammered in my chest. I shouldn't have ever come here, I thought. I shouldn't have ever let my father guilt me into coming to visit the old crazy lady. I stayed where I was, and the house fell quiet. Even from where I sat, I could see the moon make its way across the night sky as the light above the window shifted. The sound was ethereal and light, and at first I wondered if I imagined it. Then. I realized it was one of the many wind chimes that my grandmother had strung all over the house. It wasn't until this moment I wondered why she'd have them inside, where the wind could never touch. The wind chime that hung across the room by the closet danced 
emitting its sweet, light chime. I watched as the strings with the shiny metal cylinders clanked against each other, making the quiet room suddenly feel loud. I was still sitting with my back against the door. The doorknob above my head was still clearly locked, but the closet door on the other side of the room was cracked open, just enough to see that darkness hid inside. Then, something clamored inside the closet. I closed my eyes, praying that it was just my mind, that I hadn't really heard anything. But the noise was there, and the wind chime kept dinging, almost as if there was a storm brewing, waiting to explode. The closet door glided open, hitting the wall behind it. I covered my mouth, trying not to scream. Claws crept around the corner of the door. The demon's long, black, snaky fingers clinging to the door jamb. Then, its eyes peeked around the corner at me. It stopped to stare, its white irises finding me, before it crawled out, hand over foot, toward me. It stopped only when it was inches from my face. Black, almost burnt-looking skin stretched across its face. But I couldn't help but look into its eyes. Even though they were white, there was something familiar about the shape and the look of them. In fact, they looked just like Dominic's eyes, who had just visited Grandma before me. Now you get to dance with us. The chimes never stopped as everything went black. Retro video games hold a special place in our hearts. Glorious 16-bit Technicolor, platformers, shoot-'em-ups, RPGs. But in this tale, shared with us by author Cody Hall, we're introduced to a game that brings back its share of bad memories along with the good. Performing this tale are Kyle Akers and Aaron Lillis. So when you go rooting through childhood memories, be prepared for what you might discover. Mysteries of the past might start having answers, especially if you embark on Mr. Ghoul's Adventure. I'm not as close with my parents as I should be. It's not that they did anything wrong or that we had some sort of dramatic falling out. We've just drifted apart since I graduated from college. I still live fairly close, no more than an hour or so with traffic, but aside from Christmas and the occasional family member's birthday lunch, we just don't really talk. I guess I can use Dylan's death as an excuse. Dylan was 16 when he died. He was the best older brother any kid could have asked for. 
We played sports together. He let me hang out with his cool friends. But where we really bonded was our love of video games. Back in the late 90s, we had almost every console, from the first PlayStation all the way to the Sega Dreamcast. Our favorite games, however, were the ones on the Super Nintendo. Sure, when Nintendo 64 came out, everybody at school had one, but we always seemed to find a reason to come back to that classic SNES. Maybe we loved it for those dusty old cartridges, or maybe we were just stubborn and didn't want to move on with the times. Dylan did always talk about how he never wanted to grow up, something my parents always hated hearing. About a week ago, my parents sold our old childhood home and asked if I wanted to help them move. It had been years since I'd been there, and of course I didn't have a better way to spend a Saturday afternoon, so I said I was free. On the drive down, I thought a lot about Dylan. About the morning, I discovered his body. I remember waking up to the most horrible smell coming from Dylan's room. It's something I can't really describe, but the closest I can compare it with would be a burning log, if that makes any sort of sense. It was something kind of similar to what you smell when you sit around a campfire, but this was a more heightened version of that. It doesn't matter though, because there wasn't a fire inside that room, nor was there any evidence of one taking place. When I opened the door that morning, I saw the cold, lifeless, pale corpse of my brother lying in a pool of his own blood. I saw his normally white t-shirt hardened in dark, dried, crusty blood that emerged from so many stab wounds that I lost count. But that wasn't even the worst of it. I'll never forget the horrified feeling I felt when I saw Dylan's bare, empty eye sockets staring back at me. I screamed so loud I couldn't speak for two days. My parents rushed me out of there as quickly as they could, but the damage was done. Dylan's murder was never solved. The detectives reassured us for years they were going to find out who did this, but eventually we stopped asking. I guess my parents just wanted to move on and try and forget it happened. I know I never will. I pulled up alongside the curb and there the house was, still with the same ugly maroon paint job. Dylan always joked that if we ever got lost, we'd be able to find our way home just by looking for the ugliest house in the neighborhood. I helped my dad lift some furniture into the U-Haul before ending the day packing the last of the boxes with my mom. I didn't say much to either of them aside from the usual, what's new with work and how's the weather? The last few boxes were in the garage and after that I would be free of this awkward prison I found myself in. I thought I had loaded the last box and was ready to go just before I noticed one more in the corner of the garage. It was relatively small, no taller than two or three feet. It was dusty and faded and the packing tape was already peeling off. On the side of the box in faded writing was his name, Dylan. I thought about leaving it. I really did. Maybe he should stay with the house, I thought. I heard my dad start the U-Haul just before my mom walked in. Oh, we had one more? After she saw the name on the side, her face seemed to go lifeless. Oh. I can take it. I wasn't really thinking and just wanted this moment to be over more than anything. I picked up the box, said my goodbyes, and left. On the drive back... I considered leaving the box closed, but my curiosity got the best of me. Dylan wasn't just my older brother. He was my best friend. And if whatever was in this box was going to bring back at least some of those great memories we had, or if it could miraculously give me clues as to what caused his death, then it was worth it. 
I lifted the heavier than expected box up five flights of stairs before I got back to my small one bedroom apartment. The elevator was broken, of course, just my luck. When I got to my place, I set the box down in my living room and opened it up. Despite the tough time I had lifting it, there wasn't really anything heavy inside. Our old Super Nintendo was resting on top of Dylan's small 20-inch TV. I remember being so jealous when he got that on his birthday. I pulled out the two items and set them on the floor. They both still had their cables attached, and the SNES even had a cartridge left in there. It was a game I didn't remember. It had plain black labeling with white text that read, Mr. Ghoul's Adventure. That was it. No ESRB rating, no artwork, nothing. I plugged everything in and gave it a whirl. The TV slowly faded on and the first thing I saw was a dark gray screen that contained only the words, Begin Game. I started the game and was greeted with the words, Level 1. I was then shown my 8-bit avatar, a short, hooded figure with a skull for a face. He appeared to jump up in joy as the game loaded up. After a brief moment, the screen pixelated into what appeared to be a dark and rainy alleyway. This was a simple, side-scrolling game, so all I had to do was move to the right. I did so, and after jumping past a few dumpsters here and there, I passed what appeared to be a homeless man. He was just laying on the ground, not really moving. But the animated breaths he was taking proved he was still alive. I couldn't advance past him, so I just waited there for a moment until a pop-up tutorial window appeared on the screen. The bubble said to press B to kill. That seemed pretty cruel and mean-spirited for a video game, but I figured it wasn't much different than killing hundreds of soldiers in Call of Duty or ripping the heart out of my opponents in Mortal Kombat, so I did what I was instructed to do. My avatar reached down and stabbed the homeless man. I had to do it multiple times to get the job done, with each stab accompanied by an eerily joyful sound similar to when you received coins while playing Super Mario. Eventually the body disappeared, and I was able to advance through a dark portal of sorts that manifested itself against the brick wall. I advanced to level two. My avatar appeared in front of the tall front doors of a large upscale mansion. A tutorial window popped up again, this time telling me to press B to pick lock. I did so and walked in, which caused the screen to morph into what appeared to be the main living room of the house. The low sounds of crying played through the speakers. I moved along to my right, heading up a large spiraling set of stairs. As I ascended them, the crying became louder. And when I had moved onto the upstairs hallway, I learned that it wasn't actually crying that I was hearing. It was the sounds of a couple having sex. I opened the door to the bedroom and there they were under the sheets. The outdated graphics made it look so ridiculous. I moved forward. I didn't need the tutorial. I knew what to do. I pressed B multiple times, stabbing the couple repeatedly. When I was done, a portal opened up to my right again, and I stepped through. I was over it at this point. I don't know what demented soul made this game, but this wasn't my type of thing. I was done. That was until I saw what level three had in store for me. The game faded into another hallway, but this wasn't some rich corridor with numerous rooms to pass like the last one. This was different, but all too familiar. This was my old house. My avatar wasn't there this time. In fact. No one was at the start of the level. Eventually, the doors on the left opened up and out stepped two avatars, a man and a woman. I instantly recognized them as my parents. As I moved around, I was weirdly able to control both of them in a bizarrely synchronized way. I should have just put the controller down and thrown the damn system out of my window, but I was so stunned, I guess my eyes were glued to the screen. 
My parents reached the only door to walk through. Dylan's door. I entered the room and there Dylan was, quietly sleeping in his bed. My parents both looked at each other and then back to me. The tutorial window popped up on the screen, reading, press B to begin. My thumb instinctively rested lightly on the top button, but I had no intention of pressing it. It wasn't until I was startled by a sudden, <laughs> wicked laughter coming from the game that I was jolted to press B. My parents' avatars paused and looked at me, me, directly, before smiling and moving over to Dylan's bed. They both gleefully stabbed my brother numerous times. He tried crawling away from them, but with every move he made, they jumped in front of him and resumed their attack. I was completely frozen. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I sat there and watched in horror as my dad stood Dylan's body up for my mom to gouge his eyes out of their sockets. <laughs> when they were finally finished, they dropped the body to the floor, looked right back at me and waved. I chucked the game out of my living room window immediately after that. I didn't sleep for days. I couldn't bring myself to go to work. I couldn't forget what I saw. Those terrifying memories I had that morning came rushing back, but mutated into some fucked up combination of the events I witnessed in real life and what I'd seen on that TV screen. The same TV that suddenly came to life on its own in the middle of the night a week after I threw the game away. I sprung up from the couch, which wasn't too difficult to accomplish since I couldn't sleep to begin with. The screen welcomed me back with the main menu of the game. The same fucking game I watched fall five floors down to the ground and shatter into a million pieces. Text appeared on the screen. New level unlocked. The screen changed into what I immediately recognized as the ground floor of my apartment complex. Mr. Ghoul appeared and waved at me. He then moved to his right, heading up the stairs. I wasn't controlling him, but someone was. Someone was playing the game and I was the next level. I grabbed what I could and ran out the door. Thank God the elevator was working again. I really didn't want to meet whatever the hell this thing was halfway down the stairs. I went straight to the elevator doors and tapped quicker and faster on the closed door button than you can possibly imagine. The elevator doors slowly cracked open and I forced my way in. As I desperately tapped the closed door button as fast as I could, the song became so loud. It blasted through the hallway. Mercifully, the doors to the elevator were finally closed, but not before I caught a glimpse, just a glimpse of the shiny white skull of who I can only assume is Mr. Ghoul himself staring right back at me. He didn't run after me. He simply tilted his head and waved. I got to the bottom floor, ran to my car, and drove off. It's been three weeks since. I've been staying in a different hotel room every night. I figured as long as I'm moving, he can't catch me. But I'm running out of money. And I'm running out of time. I've had to leave earlier than I wanted to these past three nights. He's getting closer and he's getting faster. I could only ignore my parents' persistent phone calls for so long before I had to leave my phone behind. I don't know who they are anymore or if I ever knew them at all. I can't go to the cops. What am I supposed to tell them? I'm recording this as a last ditch effort, hoping it reaches the right people. I don't know who made the game I don't know how my brother got it, but please, if you ever come across it, or if you're the one playing right now, 
I'm begging you. Turn it off and run. You can't destroy it. You'll just waste time trying. Stay on the move. And if it comes for you, you'll know you need to get going the second you hear that damn theme song start playing. Having a best friend means being able to share fun experiences, good times, and even secrets. But of course, having a best friend comes with its own set of pitfalls. Sometimes your pal can talk you into things you might not want to do. In this tale, shared with us by author Meg Malloy, we meet a girl whose bestie just might be a bad influence. Performing this tale are Jessica McAvoy, Addison Peacock, and Nicole Goodnight. So don't give in to peer pressure, especially not when it involves dangerous powers and ritual sacrifice. And certainly don't say yes when your BFF asks you to play the Storm Game. After we killed Stephanie Taylor, Tara started telling people that she could control electricity. When she got mad at school, she pretended that her rage made the lights flicker. She went around shocking people with static and saying shit like, that was only 1% of my power. She even blamed herself for my mom's blender shorting out and my phone not being able to charge anymore. Needless to say, she was a weird kid. We were both weird kids. Which brings me back to Stephanie Taylor and how we murdered her. Tara and I were 14 in 2007. Stephanie was 13, but she was in our grade because her birthday fell late in the school year. She was friends with both of us. I didn't know why we had to kill Stephanie specifically, but Tara said we did. And I always did whatever Tara said. I wish I could say it was because she had some kind of natural Manson-esque charisma, but that would be a lie. Tara was a dork who thought she was the queen of darkness. I only followed her lead because I was hopelessly in love with her. I had been ever since the first time she sat next to me at lunch and asked me why I carried around an old shoebox with my school books. It's for protection. I opened it up to reveal a decrepit Barbie doll, some sticks, and a collection of loose animal teeth I had found in the woods behind my house. Instead of laughing at me like everyone else usually did, Tara had responded by pulling a rabbit skull out of her messenger bag. I need it to keep my enemies at bay. She had a lot of enemies, apparently. It's funny that Tara turned out the way she did. Her mom was a cop, And ever since getting shot in the leg during a drug bust, she'd been just about the most staunch anti-gun and anti-violence person I knew. Tara was not allowed toy guns as a child, not even water pistols. 
the movies she watched were screened beforehand, and she was rarely allowed to see them in the theater. However, despite her mom's best efforts to keep her away from the influence of violent media, Tara still found a way to get her fix via the internet once she got her first personal laptop. I admit that it was partly a result of my influence. Tara and I were, like a lot of kids, bloodthirsty at that age. I brought over Friday the 13th and Evil Dead and all their respective sequels on DVD. We binged Super Jail and Happy Tree Friends. We watched anime. We watched a lot of anime. It wasn't good anime. It was the stuff you get shoved into a locker for admitting you like. Shows with nigh-incomprehensible story arcs full to the brim with gratuitous hyperviolence and body slapstick, starring characters who all looked about 12 years old and were identical except for their hairstyles and bra sizes. The kind of stuff that gets you branded as one of those anime fans. We would sit at the computer desk in my room, or on Tara's bed with her laptop, and we'd spend hours flitting between YouTube and whatever illegal streaming sites had what we wanted, enthralled by the highly pixelated, poorly translated garbage unfolding on the screen before us. We didn't care that every episode of every show came to us in decentralized fragments. We took pride in our little niche. Gossip Girl and Skins and whatever the hell else was on TV back then, it was all too mainstream for us. Tara and I were counterculture. We were underground. This made us smarter than them. We were talking about anime when she first told me about the Storm game. We were getting changed in the locker room after gym class, and she was giving me a review of a smutty Naruto fanfic she'd started reading the night before. The dialogue is great, but the sex scenes so far have been awful. She sprayed two squirts of impulse siren under each armpit, even though she hadn't broken a sweat at all. Tara had a heart condition that kept her from participating in most of the activities, but she still got changed for PE every time we had it, just so she wouldn't be alone while I was in the locker room. She handed me the can of deodorant and dug around in her gym bag for the Invader Zim shirt she'd been wearing before the class started. I hope they get better later on. I'd stop reading it, but literally nobody else is writing Naruli. I guess that's what I get for having a rare OTP. I grunted in agreement while I got my purple skinny jeans on. You'll always have Will, S, and Hunter waiting for you out here in real life. I still think you can get them to hook up if you paid them 20 bucks. They'd probably let you film it for 30. I promise that's what I'm gonna do with my birthday money this year. I thought you wanted a taser. Tara finished changing and zipped her bag up. She looked up and gave me a cryptic smile. Not anymore. I found something way better. She took both of my hands and squeezed them. Remind me to tell you about the storm game at lunch. And tell me she did. The storm game was a ritual, Tara explained to me. During thunderstorms, the veil between Earth and the beyond was thin. So if you provide the right offering and say the right incantation, you might be able to call up the old gods and receive some kind of otherworldly blessing. Like you might be able to pass through dimensions, or see into the future, or, and this was the important one, harness the powers of the natural world. Like water, for example, or electricity. 
And you're sure it works? Oh yeah, I've seen videos. I nodded slowly. Okay, what's the incantation? Into the heart of the gathering storm, we offer up the blood that's warm. Looking back, that was very obviously written by someone about our age. In the moment, though, I didn't think anything of it. I believed everything Tara said. What's the offering? Tara leaned in and grinned at me. A human sacrifice. Like I said, Tara and I were equally bloodthirsty as teenagers. Nonetheless, the eager look in her eyes unnerved me just as much as it excited me. We planned a sleepover as a cover, waiting until the weather started to turn nasty before settling on a date. Tara told me to invite Stephanie after class. Tara and Stephanie didn't have any classes together. She called her stepdad to get the okay. She suspected nothing. The rain had already started by the time Tara and Stephanie arrived at my house. I was sitting in the kitchen with the pizza money and a few bags of Doritos on the table in front of me. I don't remember what we did for the first part of the sleepover. Probably just standard sleepover things. The next thing I remember clearly, as much as I've tried to forget, was me making a hot cocoa for Stephanie and stirring in a handful of ground-up sleeping pills. Tara gave me a conspiratorial look when I handed the drink over, like it was just a prank, like I'd just put pepper in it. Stephanie fell unconscious during a viewing of Nightmare on Elm Street 3. The rain started to pick back up again. Tara and I looked at each other. It's time. Tara took a knife from the kitchen, and the two of us carried Stephanie outside. It was hard. She wasn't as big as Tara or me, but we still weren't very strong, and the increasing amount of mud and wet leaves in our path made the way down to the clearing a little more precarious than we'd planned for. Hold her down! I think she's waking up! There was a crack of lightning that illuminated Tara's face and the knife in her hand. She gripped it tight and plunged it down into Stephanie's chest. Tara was breathing heavily, and for a moment I worried that her heart would give out. I pictured myself alone in the woods with my two dead friends, and that terrified me more than the idea of being a murderer. Tara, do you want me to do it? I tried to tell myself I only asked her that out of concern for her health. I tried to tell myself I wasn't trying to impress her. No! Say the rhyme with me. We chanted it together, over and over, in loud but shaky voices. Tara continued to stab in time with the words. Into the heart of the gathering storm, we offer up the blood that's warm. The more she stabbed, the more I could feel the life draining out of Stephanie. She was awake now but far too wounded to fight back against us. Tara stabbed her 14 times in total before she was satisfied that Stephanie was dead enough. Both of us sat there on our knees, panting and bloody. We stared at the body for a long time. I can't speak for Tara, but I know that I didn't really believe that anything that had just happened had happened. There was a storm drain that the creek led into. With some difficulty, 
given the slippery conditions and Tara's weak heart, we dragged Stephanie to the opening and shoved her in. Once she was down there, Tara started peeling her top off. We don't need to get rid of our clothes. I can wash them. You won't get all of the DNA residue. Tara and I stripped down to our underwear, threw our clothes into the gutter, and walked back up the steps to the back door. When we got inside, after taking our shoes off to prevent tracking anything inside, we just collapsed onto the back room couch together. We were soaking and shivering, with our hair stuck down to our faces and dirt caked around our ankles and calves. Tara and I looked at each other. I didn't know how to feel. My mind was reeling with the image of Stephanie's blood spraying onto Tara's face, the feeling of her body twitching and shuddering every time the knife went in, the sound of flesh ripping barely audible through the thunder and rain. But Tara was sitting next to me now, bloody-faced, underwear and hair clinging to her pale skin, looking exhausted but pleased. I was a mess, but she was so happy. This was the closest I'd ever felt to her. Are you scared? I nodded. It's gonna be okay, Ness. She said it gently, pushing a sodden strand of hair behind my ear. I leaned over to put my head on her chest and my arms around her torso. She let me, and she rubbed my back reassuringly. We're gonna call your mom and tell her Stephanie ran away. By the time the cops get out here, the runoff from the storm will have washed her out to sea. It's all going to be okay. I couldn't bring myself to talk. I just kept nodding. I'll call her, okay? She stood up and closed the back door before walking to the door out of the back room into the living room. I couldn't have done it without you. Tara called my mom in fake hysterics to tell her that she and Stephanie had gotten into a huge screaming match and Stephanie had run out into the storm and not come back. She said we'd gone out to look for her and found nothing. We were so worried about her in this awful weather. Mom came back immediately and the police came pretty soon after. We were questioned on the events, asked for details, then quickly sent up to bed. We'd been through enough. After brushing our teeth, Tara and I got into my bed and lay next to each other in silence for a minute. How do we know if it worked? We'll know in the morning. That was all we said to each other that night. I turned to lay on my side, and she curled up next to me. Despite what I expected, I didn't have nightmares. I didn't even dream. The police found Stephanie's body pretty quickly, but they never found our clothes or the murder weapon. We had a memorial service at school, which Tara and I skipped in favor of going behind the library for a smoke. I was more than happy to miss out. I didn't like the idea of facing all those people after what I'd done. We sat cross-legged on the ground and Tara pulled out a pack of cigarettes. She tapped the bottom of it with her palm and pulled one out. I expected her to go for her lighter, but instead she just held it up and squinted at it. What are you doing? Testing my powers, obviously. She strained, glaring at the stubbornly unlit cigarette for a little while longer 
before giving up and grabbing something from her bag. I guess it hasn't taken effect yet. Oh well. She held up her mom's police-issue taser and winked at me. Back up. She pressed the button, and an arc of blue lightning appeared between the prongs of the taser. Gingerly, she touched the edge of the cigarette to the arc and lit it. We both hooted excitedly, like we were the first apes to make fire. For the next two weeks, Tara was as unbearable as I had ever seen her. Even with all the evidence to the contrary, Tara was absolutely convinced that her powers had manifested and that she was now Zeus, god of thunder himself. She took every chance she could to shock people with static and took credit for every technological glitch or power failure that happened within 20 feet of her. She said she was immune to electrocution too, and she would touch her bare fingers to the slots in the power sockets to prove it. Never mind that you wouldn't get electrocuted from doing that anyway. Even I was starting to get tired of it, but I humored her. I still wanted to be around Tara. And on top of that, I was afraid of what she'd do if I made her angry. She could tell the cops everything. She could pin it all on me and get me put away forever. One day at lunch, Tara came over to where I was sitting, lost in thought and brought me back to reality by slamming her tray down next to me. Fucking bitch that I'm grounded for a month, can you believe that? We should confess. Tara looked at me like I had two heads. Did you even hear what I said? Yeah, your mom grounded you again. For taking her taser. And for the cigarettes. It's like, why do you keep that shit in the house and then get mad at me when I borrow it? Fucking bitch. No offense. But that's not important, and I don't care. What bug crawled up your ass today? We should confess. Don't be such a pussy. I should strike you down for talking shit like that. You couldn't strike down a fucking mosquito. You're just faking it, because you know that if you didn't get powers, it means you killed someone for no fucking reason. Tara slapped me across the face. The kids at the lunch table next to us immediately went silent. I got up and left. I didn't take my food with me. I spent the rest of the break in the bathroom, crying. Tara apologized to me after school when we saw each other again. It's just been stressful lately, all right? There was real guilt in her voice, real genuine remorse. And I got the feeling it wasn't just for slapping me. It was for all of it. It was for involving me in any of this in the first place. I know. You should come over tonight. We can de-stress a little bit. Watch some fucked up gory shit, eat Cheetos. You know, like old times. Yeah. I'll go get an overnight bag and come to your place in a couple hours. On my bike ride over to Tara's house, I saw rolling storm clouds off in the distance. I looked up and felt my stomach drop. Part of me should have known what was going to happen next, but a larger part of me was so convinced by Tara's apology that I thought it was all over. I thought we were just going to put Stephanie and the storm game behind us and go back to being our normal selves, living our normal lives. But I guess when you do something like commit murder, you can't really go back. Tara's front door was open 
and when I went inside, she was sitting on the kitchen island, holding her mom's taser. So the good news is I'm not grounded anymore. I dropped my bag on the floor. It took me a while to respond. The scene in front of me felt like a dream. The kind of dream where you're in your house and everything looks like real life. But there's one tiny thing that's just wrong enough to make you question whether or not you're awake. Your mom's car was in the driveway. She's fine. She's in her room. Tara smirked, spinning the taser around on the counter. I'm waiting for the rain to pick up. Tara, you already did this. I remembered reading something somewhere about how hostage negotiators used reverse psychology. You've already got lightning powers. Why are we doing this again? You're doing it. You're going to kill my mom for me. So you'll be the next one to get a gift from the storm gods. You'll know what it's like, and we'll be equals. I gulped dryly. I don't know if I want anything. Sure you do. Everyone wants power. Power feels good. Tara looked up and grinned, clutching the taser. Choose your weapon. It's time for your initiation. I went to the kitchen and took out a knife. I held on to it and followed Tara to the master bedroom. When we got there, Tara's mom was gagged with a balled-up t-shirt and tied to the bed with a mismatched collection of makeshift ligatures jump rope, a bike chain, some stockings. The knots were tight. Tara and I used to be Girl Scouts. She was thrashing wildly, yelling at Tara through the gag. Her makeup was streaked, like she'd been crying earlier. It was weird to think of her crying. I remember thinking she should have been beyond that, because she was an adult, and a cop on top of that but I guess the thought of your own child plotting to kill you would rattle just about anyone, regardless of how much they'd already prepared for. If you don't shut the fuck up, I'll zap you again. Tara's mom yelled some muffled curses at her, and Tara pressed the prongs of the taser to the side of her leg in response. Tara's mom convulsed, then went limp, moaning in pain. And that was still the lowest setting, bitch. She turned to me and smiled. She looked so reassuring, so incongruously warm. All yours, Ness. Let's do the chant. Okay, sure. Into the heart of the gathering storm, we offer up the blood that's warm. Tara and I chanted in unison. I took the knife in both hands and squeezed it. There was no way for me to get out of this. I was going to commit murder and probably go to jail. And for what? Tara's approval? The faint possibility of magical gifts? I felt pathetic. I felt hopeless. I squeezed my eyes shut and kept chanting. Tara raised her arms like the high priestess of some dark cult. A flash of lightning lit up the room followed by a thunder crack so loud it shook the windows. I stood next to Tara's mom and raised the knife over my head. I looked at Tara's mom. I lowered the knife. Ness, what the fuck are you doing? Stab her! You're fucking sick! 
and I'm an idiot for going along with your bullshit. Fuck you. Fuck you! Fuck your rabbit skull necklace, fuck your fake lightning powers, fuck your cheap-ass cigarettes, and fuck the storm game! Tara raised the taser and made a move towards me like she was going to zap me, but I raised the knife again. Come near me, and I'll gut you. I don't have to come near you. I can get you from here. She pointed a finger at me and squinted like she'd done at the cigarette. You're crazy. Just admit that it's fake and admit that you killed Stephanie for no reason. It's not fake. You killed Stephanie for no reason and you can't live with it. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. You don't believe me because you're weak. I thought you were cool, but you're just like everyone else. You don't get it. You don't deserve power. Neither do you. Tara grunted in frustration and clutched her mom's taser to her chest, dangerously near to her damaged heart. I felt my heart rate spike instinctively, and I heard Tara's mom cry out. You don't believe me because you can't see my true power. If I show it to you, you'll believe. I'm the master of lightning. Electricity bends to my will. It does whatever I command because I'm in control. I made the sacrifice, and this is my gift. I got a flash of memory. Tara, earlier in the week, pressing the end of her finger over a power socket and loudly announcing that she felt nothing. I could sense where she was going. I ungagged Tara's mom and used the knife to cut her wrists free from the ropes tying her. Another flash of lightning lit up the yard outside. By my command, this electrical energy will not harm me. We were too late to stop her. By the time Tara's mom was free, Tara was already pressing the end of the taser into the heel of her hand, laughing like a cartoon supervillain. She didn't vibrate and shake and spit blood like I'd seen in the movies. There were no sparks. I didn't smell her hair cooking right off of her head. She just fell over, mid-laugh, and went completely limp. I told Tara's mom everything. She hugged me, and we both cried for a long time. I wasn't put away forever for what I did, like I'd feared I would be. The sentence was softened because I pled guilty and because it was obvious to both the judge and jury that Tara had been the real mastermind behind Stephanie's death. The local news had fun with the case for a while, running with the details I had given police about the storm game. The story has been embellished over the years since. I've heard some people say Tara was a witch, or that she was possessed, or I was, or we both were. None of it's true. The real truth is simple. Tara was unhappy with her life, so she turned violent. I was desperately lonely, so I went along with Tara. That's all there was to it. No demons, no storm gods, just the destructive power of teenage boredom. The reason I'm telling this story now 
is because my current girlfriend doesn't know about any of this. She knows I've got a rap sheet, but she doesn't know what for, because I live in a different city now, and I go by a different name. I don't know how she'll react to finding out, but I know that as soon as I get the chance, I'm going to tell her the truth. Because recently, she took me home to meet her family. She has a little sister who's in about seventh or eighth grade. She was laying on the sofa, watching a video on her phone when I walked into the house. My girlfriend asked what the video was about. She answered without looking up. It's a list of the scariest rituals people have done that actually worked. Have you guys ever heard of the Storm Game? Antarctica, a place of wonder, mystery, and intrigue. What lies beneath the tundra? In this tale, shared with us by author William Meikle, a scientist on a drilling expedition is about to find out, and the mysterious substance they discover may be the stuff of scientific nightmares. Performing this tale are David Alt, James Cleveland, Andy Cresswell, and Erica Sanderson. So remember, objects under the microscope may appear larger than they really are, and beware if they grow too large, because you might just find yourself heading into the black. I don't expect you to believe all of what I have to tell you. After all, I'm not even sure I believe it myself. But what follows here is as true and accurate an attempt at some kind of clarity as I can muster. Whether it is enough to deter you from the course of action you seem hell-bent on following, only you can decide. Know this. I intend to be as distant from that dashed place as is humanly possible if and when you make a fresh expedition there. You already know why we were there, so I shall gloss over the basics and get to the pertinent part. Our problems began a month after drilling started. Hodgson's new screw bit worked superbly and we were growing increasingly confident that the latest British expedition was going to go down in history as the one which finally pierced the secrets which lay hidden under the ice on the Antarctic shelf. We passed the 400 yards depth and kept going straight on, setting a new drilling depth record in the process. But there was no time for celebration just then. We were men on a mission, a mission of discovery. Indeed, that morning brought a breakthrough we had not foreseen, for we thought that our drilling might come to an abrupt end when we hit bedrock, so I was most surprised when I stood over the drill head and heard a distinct gurgling in the shaft coming up from the depths. The drill's fixtures rattled and shook, 
and I urged the others to retreat to a safe distance. But in the end, it was all rather anticlimactic, as there was merely a small burp, leaving a puddle of water already starting to freeze for six feet around the shaft. We hurried to collect what samples we could before the cold could take its toll, but I was dismayed to find on getting them back inside to the lab that much of it was just so much crushed ice and slushy water. My dismay was fortunately short-lived, and a quick look under the microscope soon had me excited again, for there was clearly life on the slide I had prepared, life brought up from the depths where it had lain for ages too long to comprehend. I saw diatoms and algae, amoebae and hydra, a veritable profusion of microscopic life, such things as had never been thought possible in such a harsh environment. And as the water heated up under the light stage of the microscope, so things began to get more frantic under the slide. Frenzy and fights for survival replaced the torpor of the deeps. A long-awaited spring was sprung. And that was when I caught my first glimpse of the thing. It was so tiny at first that I took it for a mere speck of mineral brought up with the water, too small to allow me to make out any features even under the scope's highest magnification. But it quickly became apparent that, although it was small, it was moving under its own volition. It was, in some sense, alive. Even as I watched it, the moat made its way swiftly across my field of view, moving with what seemed like singular intent, embedding itself deep inside a spinning Volvox colony. The result was startling and immediate. The colony went from green to black in an instant. The individual cells subsumed into a smooth-surfaced oily globe that spun slowly and glistened in the faintest rainbow aura. I had to look twice to make sure it was still there, for I could not bring myself to believe what I had just witnessed. But there was one fact of which I was certain. I currently had something completely unknown to modern science under my microscope, and much as I could hardly take my eyes off it, I had to tell someone, anyone. I left the lab and went out into the corridor. Hodgson was there, stowing his outside gear in his locker. Quick, man, you have to see this. You won't believe what we've found. I was gone for less than 30 seconds, barely enough time for Hodgson to close his locker and follow me back into the lab. The black stuff had been busy in my absence. The slide, the light stage, and an area some six inches in diameter around the base of the microscope was now coated, black and oily and glistening, giving off the same faint, shimmering rainbow aura I had seen through the lens. I instinctively started to back away, but Hodgson wasn't quite so quick. Perhaps it was because he was unused to laboratory procedures, perhaps it was no more than simple curiosity, or perhaps the glazed look I thought I saw in his eyes had a more disturbing cause. The last was something I only thought about much later, but whatever the case, Hodgson had stepped over to the microscope before I had time to stop him. He put a hand on the counter some ten inches to one side of the scope as he bent over to have a closer look. The black stuff flowed smoothly like mercury across glass and engulfed the hand before he had a chance to pull it away. 
Hodgson turned towards me. The glazed look had gone, if it had indeed ever been there, to be replaced by confusion. The black stuff surged up his body, I can describe it no other way, and was over his mouth and nose before he took another breath. Hodgson made a grab for the counter, missed and pulled the microscope with him as he fell to the floor, his heels drumming twice on the linoleum, then going still. Black stuff foamed and bubbled in his mouth for a long second, then vanished down his throat. It was only then I remembered my training and instinct took over. I backed out the door, slammed and locked it, and hit the emergency alarm by my left hand. John Greer arrived 20 seconds later. He was just in time to see what the black did to poor Hodgson. It was almost like watching a speeded up film of a body turning to corruption. His chest caved in under his clothing and his skin, what we could see of it, writhed and swelled as if infested by a small army of burrowing insects. Then the black came out, oozing like diseased sweat, small beads at first, then rivulets that tore at flesh, rendering it into so much mincemeat before running to the linoleum. It spread tendrils, moving faster than if it had been a mere spillage of liquid, moving purposefully, as if looking for something else on which to feed. What had mere seconds ago been a pinprick was now pints, perhaps even a gallon of oozing, pitch-black fluidity. Greer turned to me. Freeze it. Do it now. But Hodgson... ...is gone, and you know it. Freeze it before it's too late. Our purge procedure was a simple one. I pushed the button and heard a hiss as the liquid nitrogen was released. The viewing window in the door fogged up for a second, and I had a moment of panic, stepping back quickly and checking at my feet, for I was sure that the black had made its way under the door. But there was only an increasing blast of cold, and when the window cleared, it showed a dark mass of mangled flesh and frozen tissue. It had been my best friend mere minutes before. Carruthers called for an immediate meeting in the mess and spent the first five minutes trying to apportion blame before Greer marched him back through to the window in the laboratory door. After he'd had a long look through the window, Carruthers was less worried about any possible scandal and more focused on the more immediate problem at hand. What in blazes is it? It was directed at me. Indeed, as resident biologist, it was my job to know. But I was completely at a loss to explain either what I had seen under the scope or what had happened to Hodgson. My ignorance only served to irritate Carruthers further. I suppose we'll have to stop drilling. Only if you want to stay alive. And I'd suggest closing off the shaft too, just to be on the safe side. But that will lose us days, weeks. Would you rather lose another man? He had the good grace to blush and back down. Matters went more smoothly after that. Greer and I closed and capped the shaft, taking care to watch out for any trace of blackness in the crushed ice underfoot. When we went back inside, it was to find the remaining three geologists, Williams, Jackson, and Boyle, crowded at the laboratory window to see for themselves what the fuss was about. Where's Carruthers? On the blower, calling it in. Will we be recalled, do you think? 
Williams didn't take her gaze from the scene on the other side of the door. Most likely. A cock-up of this magnitude is going to take some explaining. And what about Hodgson? We can't leave him lying there like that. It ain't Christian. I don't think that stuff gives a shit. Without another word, Greer headed off towards the Mets. I followed and found him breaking open a bottle of J&B. It seemed like a bloody good idea to join him. We had a drink for Hodgson. One thing led to another, and by the time the evening darkness came round, I was feeling little pain and was more than a bit drunk. Carruthers popped his head in at one point, but obviously realized we were not in the mood to be chastised, and left us to it. After the whiskey was gone, Greer suggested making a start on the vodka, but by then I was more than ready to slip into oblivion and forget that the day had ever happened. I left Greer there in the mess. He'd already started with two fingers of the Russian falling down water and made a careful way back to my bunk. I didn't bother taking off my clothes. The effort was beyond me by that point in any case. I put my head down, closed my eyes to stop my head spinning, and made a dive for the darkness. But oblivion would not have me. Almost as soon as I fell asleep, I dreamed. My head swam, and it seemed as if the walls of my room melted and ran. The light bulb above me receded into a great distance until it was little more than a pinpoint in a blanket of darkness, and I was alone in a vast cathedral of emptiness where nothing existed save the dark and a pounding beat from below. I danced. Shapes moved beside me in the dark, black shadows with no substance, shadows that capered and whirled as the dance grew ever more frenetic, and we joined two, four, eight, sixteen, ever growing, ever doubling. We grew, and we built there in the dark, built in time with the dance. There was stone and ice, then there was just stone again, a vast plain of blocks given form and purpose by the rhythm, and still we danced and still we built. There was light, then there was dark, long, dark, long and cold, and we forgot how to dance. We slept. We slept for a long, dark time. And then there was light, and the dancing started again. I came to my senses slowly. I was upright, which in itself seemed unusual. And I was not in my bunk, but was instead standing outside the locked door of the laboratory. More worrying still, I had a hand on the lock, as if I was ready to push the door open and go inside. The rhythm beat in my head again, and I felt the dance well up inside me, despite the fact that I was now most definitely awake. Something drew me forward, and I looked through the small window. The remains were still there on the floor, but they were no longer quite so frozen. The blackness bubbled and seethed, throwing up thin, snake-like tendrils to taste the air and thrash as if in anticipation of a meal. The beat grew stronger, more insistent, and my hand crept toward the lock again. 
there was only one thing that stopped me, and even now I am not sure if it was but another part of my fever dream. The black tissue split and opened up a small fissure, and a single lidless eye, pale green and milky, stared out from the new fold in the protoplasm. Once again, my self-preservation instinct saved me. I hit the purge button before I even thought to do anything else, and the loud hiss as the nitrogen flooded the room did much to break whatever spell was laid on me. The door window misted and clouded, and when it cleared, I stared in at a frozen mess of tissue on the floor, and the beat, the dance, had stopped. For now, at least. I am not prone to sleepwalking, in fact I do not think I have ever done it, but then again I had never seen my best friend die in front of my eyes either. I put my experience down to the stress of the day and the cumulative effect of the scotch on top of that. I had to, it was the only way I knew to remain sane. I took myself back to bed and this time when my head hit the pillow, it was to fall down into the blessed, dreamless darkness I had sought earlier. There was no dancing. I woke at some point later, bleary-eyed in darkness. I roused myself, not as fast as I might have done, for I was sour in the stomach and slow in the head, and went to see what was going on. The cause of the commotion was not hard to ascertain, the three geologists and Carruthers stood in the corridor. The laboratory door was open. There was no sign of any frozen tissue on the floor, no black fluid, and no Greer. We quickly ascertained that he wasn't anywhere on the base, and one of the powered sleds was gone. When Carruthers asked for a volunteer to accompany him and go after Greer, I put my hand up right away. I am not making any claim to bravery or honor. I felt responsible, somehow guilty even. Then there was the drink and the dream and the invitation to dance all jumbled up in my mind. And if I was jumbled, what defense could Greer have made? What with having taken the same amount of scotch and then some vodka on top? He had answered a call that was meant for me. At least, that's how I rationalized it to myself, there in the mess. By the time I got suited up and went to meet Carruthers in the sled bay, I wasn't feeling quite so bold, but the decision had been made. There was no backing out now, and Greer was getting further away by the minute. If he was even still Greer. I put that thought away. If I let it take root and pause to think what might have happened to the black and what manner of thing was out there riding the sled, I might not have been able to leave at all. I might have instead returned to the mess in search of what was left of the vodka and some real oblivion. Instead, I focused on the task at hand. Williams handed me a rucksack as I checked the sled had plenty of fuel for what might turn out to be a long trek. Soup. Coffee and sandwiches. You'll need them. And make sure you come back. It's starting to feel bloody lonely around here. I put on my goggles, pulled the Parker hood over my face, and kicked the sled into gear, following Carruthers out onto the plane. 
Greer's sled was not hard to follow. The twin track led in a straight line away from the base. I had thought the black might have made a run for the coast, but it was clear that whoever, or whatever, was driving had only one goal in mind. They were headed straight for the tall mountain range some twenty miles to the south. As far as I knew, the terrain in that direction was terra incognito. No one had surveyed there, no one had mapped. The mountains were considered too harsh an environment and too barren to yield much of scientific value. So why would Greer, or even the Black, want to go there? It was a question I had plenty of time to ponder, for the chase was going to be a long one. I tried to peer into the distance, tried to catch any glimpse of our quarry, but the summer glare on the ice was too strong even through the goggles. At least the journey was not arduous in itself. The plane swept up in a gentle incline toward the mountain foothills, and the ice was crisp and even over soft snow. Our sleds navigated it with little difficulty, and Carruthers, in the lead, kept up a good pace as if determined to hunt Greer down. There was only one other item to note during that long morning out on the ice. Just as we arrived at the spot where the climb became steeper and the tracks we followed led higher toward a mountain pass, we found something half-embedded in the snow, discarded in the black's flight. I stopped behind Carruthers' sled as he tore the find, already frozen from the ground, and held it up for me to see. It was a pair of long johns, the kind we all wore under everything else, the kind we kept on even when sleeping. The ones Carruthers held up were torn and tattered and bloodied, the red mixed with streaks of something darker, something black. Be careful, Carruthers. He didn't need to be told twice. He dropped the torn undergarments to the ice, but not before showing me the name tag stitched into the lining at the waist. They had belonged to Greer, and he was now out on the open ice, headed into the mountains without their protection. It was harder going after that, both because of the increasing incline and accompanying frigidity, and the growing feeling of doom that threatened to overwhelm me entirely. I was more than ever convinced that what we were chasing had little or nothing of Greer left in it, for what man would voluntarily speed so readily toward a certain death in these precipitous canyons? The walls of rock, so sheer that no snow would cling to them, climbed high around us and fell away below us in places. We crossed up and through a series of narrow valleys, many of which could not have seen even a hint of the sun for many a long year, having to travel single file for long stretches along narrow ledges above drops that fell away down into Stygian depths. Carruthers stopped at a long, curved corner, forcing me to do the same. He got off his sled and waved me forward. Have we caught him? Not yet. There was something in his voice and manner that gave me pause. Then I followed his gaze and saw why we had stopped. The cliffs that surrounded us might once have been natural formations, but they had obviously been worked extensively into a series of caves that ran like honeycomb across, down, and up the rock faces in intricate, bewildering patterns. 
I saw spirals and ellipses, funnels and cones, and other geometries too strange to be understood, let alone described. Each cave was taller than a man and wider by far, smoothly hewn by some machinery I could not begin to fathom. The workings stretched off down into the gloom as far as we could see, an unimaginable number. What the blazes have we here? Who could have done something like this? Is it something the Egyptians might have managed, do you think? I wasn't thinking of who. I was thinking of what, and remembering my febrile dreams of the night before. Two, four, eight, sixteen, ever growing, ever doubling. We grew and we built there in the dark, built in time with the dance. There was stone and ice, then there was just stone again. I believed I knew the answer to Carruthers' question, but there was little sense in telling him then, for although he was a man of great strengths, none of them came from his imagination or willingness to embrace things beyond his ken. Whoever built this marvel, they are long gone. We must press on, the day is getting away from us. If we don't catch Greer soon, we will have to turn back. On that matter, Carruthers did at least agree with me, and after a rapid lunch of some soup and a sandwich, we remounted the sleds, following Greer's tracks ever deeper into the mountain fastness. We were almost at the point of no return as far as our fuel tanks were concerned when we rose up through one final pass and came to the entrance of a cave far larger than any we had seen previously. Greer's sled lay on one side, discarded at the entrance. There was no sign of the man, but footprints in the frost on the rock showed that he had got off the sled and, without pausing, headed into the cavern. I was loath to follow. I was having a tough enough time as it was keeping the fear at bay while travelling in what passed for sunlight here in the mountains, and the thought of delving in the dark held no appeal whatsoever. Carruthers was made of sterner stuff. In this situation, his lack of imagination was serving him well. Another of his strengths was forward planning. He took two head-mounted flashlights from his pack and passed one to me without a word. The batteries will last an hour if we're lucky. We go in, and if we don't find him in 20 minutes, we come out and head back. That gives us some margin for error. Agreed? I was more than willing to go along with that. I did, however, have a question, one that I had been pondering on the journey. And what do we do when we find him? Persuade him to return with us, of course. He is clearly not himself. I almost laughed aloud at that. My nerves were shot to pieces and mania was not far from the surface. But when Carruthers headed toward the cavern mouth, I followed behind. I owed it to Greer to see this through, whatever the outcome may be. It was even darker inside than my worst fears had imagined. Colder, too, a biting cold that settled quickly into every fibre of my being. We walked quickly, our lights picking out marks on the floor of the cavern that were sometimes footprints and sometimes something else entirely. Five minutes after entering the cavern, I noticed that this place, like the ones we had seen on the cliff path, had most definitely been manufactured. The walls were too smooth, too regular. And then there was the carved relief that seemed to cover every surface, 
Pictorial representations of cities and war, natural disasters and calamity, millennia of history that we had to hurry past, leaving it unread, for the gait of the footprints on the floor had changed again. Whatever we followed now seemed to be going on all fours. After another five minutes, the path took a downward turn and got markedly steeper such that we had to take great care not to go tumbling headlong into black depths. This is madness. We should turn back. If Greer wants to kill himself this badly, I suggest we leave him to it. I was almost tempted to agree, and might even have done so, but then I felt it. A warmer breeze on my face and accompanying it somewhere not too far below us, the clear and unmistakable sound of feet slapping on rock. Carruthers did not wait for me. He headed off in rapid pursuit, his headlamp bobbing away from me in the darkness. I knew that if I did not follow, I would forever after feel like a coward, but it took every ounce of bravery I could muster to make the first step downward. The hot air on my face grew hotter still the further down we went, and a minute later I noticed that I did not need the headlamp. The cavern was filled with an all-too-familiar shimmering rainbow aura that lit our passage down into ever-warmer depths. And so, finally, we came to it. The passageway leveled off after a particularly steep final section leading us out onto a vast cathedral-like space of vaulted rock, crystal stalactites, and a long, wide expanse of what I at first took to be water, lying flat and black under a shimmering aura of dancing color. Greer was already there, on the edge of the lakeshore, or at least the thing that Greer had been. It was slumped and hunched, round-shouldered and more simian than man. It turned at the sound of our approach, and I saw that the man I knew was not completely gone, for his haunted eyes stared back at me from a strangely flattened face. Come on back, Greer. There are doctors who can take a look at you. Chaps who can find a cure. I wasn't so sure of that myself, but held my peace. Greer looked from one to the other of us. His mouth opened as if he might speak, but all that came out was a rush of black fluid. Without another word, he turned, took two steps, and fell face first toward the lake, which rose up to meet him as he fell and swallowed him whole. It was not a lake as such. It was not water at all. The whole vastness of the floor of the cavern was little more than a seething, roiling sheet of the black. As Greer's body sank into it, a beat began, faint at first but growing ever stronger. I felt it tug at me, calling me to the dance. I pulled Carruthers away. We need to leave, now. The rainbow colors swirled and danced in time to the rhythm. I danced with them. I can see it even now. All I have to do is close my eyes. I can see the pattern and design. They were made as builders, you see, and they indeed build. 
but they also danced, living and breathing in their own way, dancing in time to a beat only they can hear. The rhythm from which they were born also gave them purpose, a beat that defined the dance from its very beginnings in the dark caverns under the mountains and would ultimately, inexorably, lead the dance to its end. I was lost to it, filled with it, awestruck by it. And I might be there yet, dancing in that cavern with what was left of poor Greer, had Carruthers not slapped me hard on the face. I believe it was that singular lack of imagination of his that saved me in the end. Might well have saved us both. I followed, he led, and we raced up and away out of the depths, back up into the twilight through which we sped back to the base, reaching home just as the last of our fuel gave in. The dance followed me all the way. So, there it is. My tale for you to make of what you will. I only ask that you consider it carefully before you go back to those mountain passes. I know Carruthers has spoken to you of the workings, of the long history and the relief work, and of the wonders that lie there waiting to be explored. But that same lack of imagination that saved us is also the thing that might doom everyone. For I still dance, it is in me even now, all these months and miles distant. And I have seen the pattern, the inexorable result of our building, our dancing. With each passing year, the black creeps further in the deep cavern, and the dance strengthens and grows. We have danced since before life walked on land, and we will dance long after there is nothing else but the black and the rock. We will dance in the black as the moon falls into our arms, and when the sun dims and goes dark, we will dance on into the stars, black on black, until the very end, when all is black, all is the dance. We will dance. In our final tale, we join a woman named Kathy just as she's being served divorce papers. When a marriage ends, it can be tough, but it's tougher still when your husband's a petty little man whose final act of vengeance is to ensure the divorce leads to public humiliation. In this tale, shared with us by author Jim W. Shoemaker, perhaps the arrival of a new neighbor can take Kathy's mind off her husband. Performing this tale are Nicole Doolin, Sarah Thomas, Mike Delgadio, Jesse Cornett, Dan Zapula, and Atticus Jackson. Hopefully you don't find this tale too hard to swallow, but perhaps there's a lump in your throat, or maybe it's Globus Hystericus.
lost my mind the moment the divorce papers were served. It was Wednesday. Sakura was full of the lunch hour crowd. The usual horde of thirty-somethings lining the booths and sushi bar, ID lanyards brushing the tabletops or hanging idly from hip pockets and belt loops. The process server stuck out like a wolf among sheep, with his black leather jacket and slicked back hair. He came through the door and waved away the host, craning his neck above the fray as though he were the fourth member of an incomplete dining party. In a way, he was. I should have seen him long before he found me at my table with Kent and Joelle. I should have known he was coming. Hell, I should have steered clear of my friends until I knew for sure it was over. Should have. Kathleen Warner? I looked up at this stranger. May I help you? Are you Kathleen Warner? In the half second it took me to say yes and nod my head, I understood what was happening, and I hissed out the final sound of the word like a snake. In that same moment, as though trained to see even the most incipient signs of an affirmation, the process server reached in his back pocket and withdrew a thickly folded envelope. You've been served. He walked away. It was over like that. Oh my god. I couldn't speak. I couldn't even put my hand down. I kept it raised holding the envelope dumbly. I didn't think they even did things like that in real life. I just thought it was like movies and stuff. Don't be a dick, Kent. She turned to me. Honey, are you all right? What is it? Sakura seemed to have grown very quiet. Maybe people were looking at me, but I didn't notice. All I could see were the envelope and the tepid bowl of miso behind it on the table. I opened my mouth, but only air came out. I was rescued by our waiter. More plum wine for you folks. She'll have a shoshu, a double, on the rocks. Hurry up, too. The waiter scurried away. Are you going to open it? My mouth was still hanging ajar. I looked at Joelle and handed her the envelope. You open it. Honey, are you sure? She tore into it without waiting for an answer, belying her sympathy. I turned to Kent, who looked profoundly uncomfortable. It's Alan. Joelle read the first of what looked to be a dozen pages. She glanced up at me and made a pained expression with her face. Do you want to know? It's divorce. Double shochu? The waiter saved me again. He set down a glass in Kent's plate of tempura maki. Anything else for you right away, or... We're fine! He scurried away. I took a woefully inadequate sip of my drink. It tasted like lighter fluid... I slammed the rest back in one gulp. Joelle was scanning the other pages. It's pretty standard. Why did he serve you, though? Are you ducking him? 
No, he's an asshole, that's why. I finished my tiny glass of plum wine and helped myself to Ken's half-full one. Both of them were silent. Kent was trying to make himself so small that it looked as though he were priming himself to never speak to me again. As though this were mortifying for him. This seems so unlike him. <laughs> While serving me divorce papers in front of my friends in public may have seemed unlike Alan, it was very like Joelle to pontificate on my husband's motivations. Her thirst for information was not quenched by mere gossip. She was a consumer of social coincidence. The why and where and how of people's actions. Kent, meanwhile, who was suddenly intensely interested in his Maki role, was the opposite. The less he knew, the better suited he was. I snatched the papers away from Joelle. It's not unlike him at all. This is exactly the kind of center-of-the-universe shit he lives for. Even if he's not here, he's gotta make his presence known. I didn't even know you guys were having problems. Has he talked to you about it? All he does is talk. And if he can't talk, then he'll hire a friend of the court to do his talking for him. I brandished the papers in front of me. I suddenly felt very ill. I stood up and almost fell over as boozy blood rushed into my head. You're not going back to work? No, but I need to get out of here. The collar of my blouse was strangling me. Joelle looked at Kent, failed to gain his attention, and slapped him on the shoulder. She gestured her head at me. Oh, uh, right. I'll give you a ride home. After we paid the bill, I walked out of Sakura in a daze, clutching the divorce papers in one hand. Joelle was rubbing my back, and Kent lagged well behind us. The streets were transiently busy with noontime pedestrians. If I hadn't been so distracted, I might have noticed the man with the wound on his neck. The man who looked like my husband, Alan, sitting at the window counter of the restaurant. No food or drink in front of him. Not even water. And if I had noticed him then, I would have known I had gone crazy. But to my peril, I didn't find out until later that day. Kent barely acknowledged my thanks before he accelerated away leaving me alone in front of my seafoam foursquare. There was a moving truck parked in front of the house next door. Ghost and Sons movers. We're so efficient, it's spooky. I gave it a cursory glance and walked up the concrete path to my front door. New neighbors were Alan's territory. I was certainly no pie-wielding welcome wagon, and I hated to make small talk. Alan was always the talker. The house was empty of his possessions, as it had been for the last two months. A few stuffed chairs and desultory side tables littered the atrium and living room. A woe-begone shifferobe was pushed into a corner, as though I were punishing it. 
I didn't think I had ever been so sad, standing at the threshold of my home, looking in on the ruin of my life. The alcohol had forgone its pleasurable effects and skipped right to giving me a headache. I trudged into the kitchen and wrenched open the medicine cupboard, pushing aside a cake plate to get the Advil bottle. I shook a few out and filled a glass of water at the kitchen sink. Peering out the sink window, I saw my new neighbor for the first time. He stood in his kitchen, unpacking a box of dinnerware that looked conspicuously like my own. His dun hair and eyes reminded me of Alan at first, but his movements were thoughtful and deliberate, unlike Alan's performative gesticulations. He was handsome, I noticed right away, though his chambray button-down appeared to hide a thin frame. He wore a scarf low on his neck, tied with a knot that hung down on his chest. The scarf was unusual. If it was fashion, it was uncoordinated. If it was for warmth, it was out of season. It was August and hot. No, it struck me that this was a security textile, like a child's blanket. He looked at me. I jumped and hastily looked away, pretending to wash the cup I had just used. After a few seconds, I looked up again. He was still peering at me, but his gaze was unembarrassed. He raised his hand in greeting. I smiled and returned the gesture. I dried my hands and pulled my cell phone out of my purse. The display told me it was Alan. I answered it and put it on speaker. You are such an asshole. Hi, Kathy. How could you do that to me? How could you have that man embarrass me in front of my friends? Whoa, whoa. I had no control over when and where they were going to do it. I didn't even know it was going to be a man. As though that mattered. He served you in front of your friends? Was it Joel? The question seemed asinine and unimportant to me, so I ignored it. Why would you serve me in the first place? It's not like I would avoid the hearing. Why not do it yourself? Well, because I... You I... did it because you love to make a show of everything. Giving me the papers yourself would have been too unglamorous. Well, that's not fair. Fair or not, it's true, and you know it. I want this to be amicable. Amicable? What atrocious legalese. You're off to a bad start, then. <sighs> Maybe we need to sit down and talk. Maybe you should have thought of that before you hired a process server. I took a deep breath and paused. I could hear him breathing on the other end of the line. It infuriated me to think that he perceived himself as the adult in this situation, calmly waiting for an end to my childish hysterics. Look, I can't talk to you right now. But we should... I know. I know how much you like to talk, but not right now. See you later. I stabbed my forefinger on the red end button. 
I stared at the phone numbly until it buzzed with a text alert. I unlocked it and read the message. Alan, of course. He always needed the last word. When you're a little more yourself, we can schedule a day for the hearing. Don't blame me, darling. Properly punctuated and capitalized. Even his text messages were maddening. It took all my strength not to smash the phone on the tile floor. I looked out the kitchen window again. My neighbor was still there observing me. His mouth was set in an expression of sympathy, and he appeared to shrug as though he had been listening in on my phone call. I smiled weakly at him and retreated to the living room where I sat down on the floor and wept. (laughs) Maybe it was the shrug. Maybe it was that he was handsome. Maybe it was that I was three drinks deep by one o'clock in the afternoon. But something compelled me to his house. I extricated myself from the floor, grabbed my most expensive unopened bottle of wine, dried my eyes washed my face, and moved my legs until I stood in front of 13 Margaret Street, my new neighbor's vinyl-sided split level. The door was left open so the movers of Ghost and Sons could stream in and out with armfuls of furniture and boxes. Before I could think better of it, I stuck my head through the doorway. Hello? A pair of khaki-clad legs appeared at the top of the half-flight of stairs. Then the chambray button-down. Then the scarf. That odd scarf. Finally, his face appeared. (gasps) I gasped. My neighbor's resemblance to Alan was not just passing, as I first thought when I glimpsed him through the window. It was uncanny. They could have been brothers or have shared some distant progenitor, like a great-grandfather. My neighbor's brow protruded slightly to canopy his eyes, just like Alan's did, and his mouth was set in the same perpetual expression of irony, as though he were privy to a joke being played on everyone but him. The only real difference was in their eyes. Alan's were cruel and condescending and this man's were gentle and avuncular. Hello. He nodded back to me and gave me a little wave with his hand. If I thought it was strange that he didn't respond with his voice, then I don't remember. What struck me at that moment, even more than his resemblance to Alan, was the ethereal quality of his presence. He was at once there and not there, His edges were diffuse, chameleonic, as though trying to blend into the background to conceal himself from some unseen predator. At the time, I attributed this impression of my neighbor to the double shochu, but of course it was all too real, and at the same time unreal. He seemed to mistake my silence for impatience. He pointed at the scarf, I was so baffled that I didn't understand. He made a duck with one hand and mimicked talking, then pointed again to the scarf and shook his head. Recognition dawned. You can't talk. 
He smiled and nodded. Laryngitis? <laughs> he shook his head again, then looked around as though embarrassed. Slowly, he began to unravel the scarf around his neck. Oh, you don't have to. He interrupted me with a kindly gesture and continued to spin the scarf off. I suddenly felt a strong aversion to seeing whatever lay buried under there, even if it was just the naked flesh. Beneath the scarf was a swath of gauze covering his suprasternal notch. A daub of blood leaked to the surface. My neighbor leaned forward, as though he meant for me to examine the wound. My God, are you all right? He shrugged and smiled. Get your thyroid taken out? No, he gestured. Then he made a fist and swung it towards his neck in a stabbing motion. Someone attacked you? Another shrug, another smile. He made a dismissive wave and pointed to the bottle of wine in my hand, raising one eyebrow. Oh, I'm Kathy from next door. I just wanted to come over and welcome you to the neighborhood. I handed him the bottle awkwardly. I hope you like cab. He nodded, a wry little grin creasing his face. He bowed slightly to signal his thanks, then threw his thumb over his shoulder and looked plaintive. The meaning was clear. Sorry, of course. I'll let you get back to work. Just wanted to say welcome. Holler if you need anything. I cringed when I realized my mistake, but my neighbor didn't miss a beat. He cupped his hand at his mouth and mimed shouting, a sardonic little lift of his eyebrows. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Just don't hesitate to let me know if I can help unpack or show you around or anything. His smile grew a little wider his dimples reddening. Before I could make an ass of myself further, I retreated out the open door and back into my house. It wasn't until I was back in my own kitchen, peering back out the window, that I realized I had been flirting. A few hours later, I got another text from Alan. It was hard to see you like that. Not yourself. I stared at my phone screen, perplexed. It was hard to see me like that. I hadn't seen Alan in weeks. I avoided even the part of town he was in, in fact. I shrugged off the message. He must have been referring to when we talked on the phone earlier, and mistyped what he meant to say. Even he could get things wrong sometimes. The small victory I felt at his mistake was stultified. You're not yourself. It was the second time today he had accused me of such a thing, as though I were betraying myself, acting differently in some vague existential way. The idea that he thought he knew me well enough to typify and categorize my behavior made me want to laugh. Hell, I had never been served divorce papers before. 
Who could possibly have said that I was acting in an unusual way? But that was Ellen through and through. He thought he knew everything. When really he knew nothing and everybody else knew that about him. At least he hadn't called again. I wouldn't have been able to stand hearing him talk, talk, talk. As I predicted it would, Joelle's car swung into my driveway at 5.30. I set my teeth as I watched her exit the car. Despite the consuming loneliness I felt, paradoxically, I didn't want company. Actually, that wasn't true. I peeked out the side window to 13 Margaret. I couldn't see my neighbor, but there were lights on in his house. The van of Ghost and Sons had moved on. Inexplicably, I felt a tingling warmth in my body. The thought of being pulled into those chambray arms, of sinking into his comely, genial eyes, appealed to me ferociously. I could swim in his silent presence. Forget about Alan. Forget about the divorce. The longing I felt was tinged with feverish need. I desired him then. I snapped out of my reverie, surprised to find myself standing in my atrium and not in my neighbor's arms. What was wrong with me? I had only met him once, didn't even hear him speak. He was too unfamiliar for girlish fantasies. I shook my head and opened the door. Joelle pulled me into an embrace. She wouldn't let go, even when I dropped my arms to my sides. Oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Don't worry, I covered for you at work. Stillman said that if you need the rest of the week, you can go ahead and take it. I bit back a groan. If I had it my way, Stillman would never have known about the divorce. Now surely she and the whole office knew. Thanks. And sorry about Kent. He's such an idiot. He doesn't ever know how to act. She cocked her head to one side and frowned. How are you? I'm fine. Are you really? I mean, I guess not. I didn't know what answer would please her. Joelle shook her head. I can't believe how horrible that was. The way that man said your name and then just gave you your divorce papers? It seems so cruel. Come in. She took her shoes off and padded into the living room. She glanced around at the emptiness. I'm sure, silently inventorying the lack of furniture, photos, art, everything that might help to classify me as the lonely spinster I was surely destined to become. Where's your stuff? This is it. God, did he move out this morning while we were at work? He's been gone for two months, Joe. He's got an apartment over in Phelan. She looked shocked, then hurt. What? Why didn't you tell me? Pardon me for not wanting to shout it from the rooftops that my husband and I were breaking up. I thought I was your friend. Now she looked even more hurt. I had to swallow my impatience. It seemed morbidly unfair for Joelle to expect a role in my little drama. 
and plainly, I didn't have the emotional intelligence to know who to tell what, to know exactly the strength of each of my relationships and what each of my friends was entitled to know. What felt natural to me was to say nothing, so nothing is what I said. I didn't tell anyone, not even my mom. Why not? Because it's no one's goddamn business. Because I was embarrassed, I guess? It's not healthy to keep things in. That's probably why it shocked you so much today. Because you hadn't dealt with it right away. She had begun to sound like Alan, telling me exactly what I did wrong. I clenched and unclenched my fist. Instead of throwing her bodily out of my house, I gestured towards the kitchen. Want something to drink? Sure. I uncorked some Pinot Noir. Alan had an elaborate ritual of decanting the whole bottle, while dinner guests waited anxiously for their glass. I was glad to defy it by taking a swig right from the bottle before I poured for Joelle. We sat on stools at the peninsula, bathed in the soft recessed lighting. I felt a pang of guilt, angling dangerously towards despair. I'm sorry. This just sucks so bad. I think Joelle knew she had overstepped, too. She took my hand and squeezed. I'm sorry, too. Kent's not the only one who doesn't know how to act, I guess. I'm just surprised, is all. You and Alan seem so good. He was good. He was so rigid. So set in his ways. He didn't have room for me. Especially if I didn't conform to the way he wanted things to be. He could be an asshole. He was just so disappointed in me all the time. Always lecturing me about how to behave. About how I misbehaved. But it's funny. The more he tried to change me, the less I gave a shit. I think that's why he left. You think? <laughs> I laughed, fingering the stem of my wine glass. I mean, I can't be sure. Towards the end, whenever he opened his mouth, I just stopped listening. I can just see how much he would love that. Yeah, he didn't have a captive audience anymore. Without that, I was useless to him. The frankness of that thought, the statement of my uselessness, depressed me utterly. She frowned and rubbed the top of my hand with her thumb. I know you'll get through this. It took all of my strength not to cry. At least one of us does. We each had another glass. I set out some charcuterie. We talked idly about work and Kent and family. I told her I wanted the divorce over as soon as possible, and that I would give Alan everything he wanted, within reason. It was just easier to go along with him, and I figured this was the last time I would ever have to do it anyway. I opined that I would need to give up the house. I couldn't afford the mortgage on my salary alone. The idea of moving back into an apartment was loathsome, but I didn't have much of a choice. Why don't you move next door? 
We stood at the kitchen sink, washing our dishes. Joelle inclined her head out the window towards 13 Margaret. It seems like that place has been for sale forever. It's gotta be cheaper than your house. Actually, someone just moved in today. Joelle set her hands on the edge of the sink and shrugged. Looks empty to me. I promised Joelle that I would call her in the morning. I watched from the door, waving as she backed her car out of the driveway and drove away. I learned then that nights would be the hardest time for me, even after I went to prison. The somnolent quality of the dark triggered a depression that seemed to fill up my very core, so that I was less me than I was sadness itself. When I reflect on how the nighttime affects me, it's no wonder that I did what I did. If I, in fact, did it, I'm still not sure. In those early days, I had no idea how to cope with my loss, which dragged me into the realm of madness without my knowing it. Of course, I didn't find this out until it was too late. I had nothing to do, nothing to tidy, no plans that could be made at that moment. So I sat in one of the remaining chairs in the living room and opened a book. The next thing I remember was snapping awake to the sound of the doorbell. I set my book aside and opened the door. My neighbor stood at the threshold. In one hand, he held the bottle of wine I delivered to him earlier. In the other, he suspended two wine glasses upside down by their stems. He smiled and wagged his hands at me. Would you like to have a drink? His kindness broke me. Before I knew it, I was on the floor sobbing. He set down everything he held and knelt beside me one comforting hand on my shoulder. I drew him into my arms and wept, too ruined to be embarrassed. Everything that had happened that day came flooding out of me. The process server's emotionless voice, Kent's discomfort in my presence, the phone call with Alan, my decision to hide our breakup from my friend, everything. The recent past was a component part of my tears. It was no wonder I had gone mad, given the traumas I suffered that day. As it happened, I simply didn't have the emotional noose to see them through. I thought I could handle it by allowing my emotion to crest in my neighbor's arms. But, of course, that soon proved itself to be a wholly inadequate response to my grief. Uh. I'm sorry. I've just had a... a shitty day. He held me in silence. My tears wet his scarf and the shoulder of his chambray shirt. You must think I'm nuts. He shook his head. We released one another. He took my hand and raised me up off the floor. 
wrinkling his forehead into an expression of concern and inquiry. I just... I'm getting a divorce. I just found out today. The son of a bitch served me papers in front of my friends. My neighbor turned towards the door and motioned toward it. Should I leave? No, please. It was so nice of you to come. <laughs> How about that drink? So, for the second time that evening, I uncorked a bottle of wine and poured out two stiff measures. My neighbor accepted his graciously, inclining his head in thanks. We stood at the kitchen peninsula awkwardly for a moment. I searched for a suitable subject to raise. Propriety had been thrown out the window when I collapsed on the floor, so I just kept on talking about Alan. I told my neighbor all about him, his controlling rigidity, his perennial disappointment in my failure to meet his expectations. I simply couldn't do right by him, and the divorce was shaping up to be a similarly poor performance on my part, at least in his eyes. My woeful inadequacy was made manifest by the fact that I couldn't readily accept my fate as a divorcee. I was being too contumacious, too loud, and that was no doubt also unacceptable for Alan. You know, you remind me of him a little bit. Not how you are, but the way you look. You look like him. He's a handsome man. He grinned. Will you tell me your name? I have some paper. Could you write it down? I feel terrible that I'm going on and on and I don't even know your name. Something changed in the room then. The atmosphere was suddenly heady and cold. Everything I had just told him, my harangue against Alan, hung in the air. A malingering presence that I desperately wanted to escape. My breath was tight in my chest. My neighbor cocked his head and raised one hand in a fist. Then he made another gesture with the same hand. Then a fist again. Then a final gesture. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know ASL. He waved me off, then crossed over to my refrigerator. There was a whiteboard suspended there for reminders and to-dos. He took the dry erase marker and wrote his name. I almost dropped my glass of wine. Alan. He couldn't have been playing a joke on me. I hadn't even used Alan's name, only referring to him as my ex-husband. The coincidence rattled me deeply. That's... That's my ex-husband's name. He nodded as though he knew that already. His hand shot up suddenly to his scarf. I jumped. The room felt deathly still. He gripped one of the frilly ends of the scarf and pulled it away from his neck, unraveling it. Don't. His mouth dropped into a frown and his eyes went wide. His whole demeanor changed, yet somehow he looked more like Alan than ever before. I could hear his labored breathing, and I saw a terrifying little pulse in the scarf at the base of his throat. He continued to unravel it, 
Please. I put up my arms to stop him, and he threw me against the counter. He didn't pursue me, only continued the inexorable undressing of that scarf. Finally, it slid off his neck. As before, there was a piece of gauze taped onto his jugular arch, a tiny spot of blood crimsoning the middle of it. I grunted in pain as I rose back to my feet. My back was on fire from where I had struck the counter and stumbled down to my seat. My neighbor seemed to be waiting for my attention. When I was upright and staring in horror back at him, he reached up to the bandage and yanked it aside. The wound beneath was grotesque, a long aperture through which I could see muscle and sinew. It seemed to open and close with every breath he took, yet it bled a little. It looked about the width of the blade of a knife. You're not yourself, darling. My neighbor's mouth didn't move, but the words distinctly came from him. It was the wound itself that spoke. The low susurrus of breath flapped the edges of it in and out. I screamed again and backed away. He advanced on me. Don't blame me, darling. Again, his mouth didn't move. The voice was raspy. Unmistakably Alan's. My husband's. You're not yourself. Get away from me! I made no move to run. I was paralyzed by fear, fixed in place. We can talk when you're more yourself. Don't blame me, darling! He rushed towards me. I caught his outstretched arms in my hands, but he overpowered me and threw me to the floor. I need him in the groin. He doubled over, clutching at himself, hissing voicelessly. I drew myself out from under him and scrambled to my feet. I grabbed the bottle of wine and wielded it like a club, upending the liquid all over the floor. His eyes were wide with rage, but he remained supine. The wound sputtered, opening and closing with every breath. I brandished the bottle like a killer from a cheap horror movie. He held out his hands. Once more, he spoke without moving his mouth, the sound issuing from the base of his throat. You're not yourself, Kathy. In an instant, he was on his feet again and rushing toward me. I knew then that he meant to kill me. I was backed into the corner with nowhere to run. His hands were coming closer and closer. His face a rictus of calm, while that horrible wound ululated and flapped. I broke the bottle over his head. Still, he advanced. Before he could get his hands around my throat, I plunged the sharp, broken bottle into the talking wound. (laughs) 
They tell me I killed Alan. My husband. Who never became my ex. They tell me that I stabbed him in the throat with a broken wine bottle. In his apartment in Phelan. I have no memory of this. I have no memory of seeing him at all that day. But they tell me I did see him. Twice. My lawyer informs me that witnesses will testify to the fact that I went there in the same afternoon the divorce papers were served. That I was distraught, threatening to kill him and myself if he didn't take me back. This first visit was precisely coincident with my visit to my neighbor's house at 13 Margaret, when I brought him the bottle of cab that we later shared. Later that night, after Joelle left, I went again, and I killed my husband, so they say. I never killed Alan, my neighbor. He isn't real, so they say. But he was in my house. I spoke to him. Honey, nobody lives there. Joelle looks at me pityingly through the plexiglass partition. But there were movers. Was neighbor Alan really a hallucination? A simulacrum of husband Alan? Was I actually visiting one when I thought I was visiting the other? Did husband Alan try to attack me, as neighbor Alan did? And my killing him was an act of self-defense? These are questions with no answers, since all parties involved are insane, dead, or not real. Stillman is my reluctant attorney. I know that Joelle convinced her to take my case. I wonder when I'll no longer be able to afford her. The plea of temporary insanity doesn't look good particularly considering that first visit to Alan's apartment when I threatened him. Something that looks a lot like premeditation. Whether a jury finds me guilty is out of my hands. I know that I'm insane. I am too vestigially sane to believe otherwise. I know that I lost my mind the moment the divorce papers were served. I wish I had realized it before it was too late. As the lights come back on, our stories come to an end. Please remember to be kind and rewind. And visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. 
This audio production is copyright 2019 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.